0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Music and food. Those two vital elements are essential to Louisiana's culture. Often they intertwine in fascinating ways, something all the guests on this week's show have personally experienced. Long before there was a cake cafe, Steve Himmelfarb was a Grammy Award-winning music producer, but it was here in New Orleans that his two great loves intersected. We'll catch up with Steve and his wife, Becky Retz, to hear what they've been up to since closing their Marini Bakery, Cake Cafe. And then we'll learn all about what trombone Shorty's lead guitarist, Pete Murano, has been up to since the pandemic took him and the band off the road. Suffice it to say that Pete is one of Instagram's newest cooking stars. So let's fire up the ovens and get this party started on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: My name is Steve Himmelfarb, owner of Cake Cafe.
2: And I'm Becky Retz, Steve's wife and also of Cake Cafe. Located
0: on the corner of Charters in Spain in New Orleans, Cake Cafe had all the qualities of a beloved neighborhood destination. Offering a full breakfast and lunch menu, as well as pastries and cake, the art-covered cafe was the kind of place where patrons could get the comfort of delicious food and the warmth of a friendly smile. In the summer of 2020, after 13 years in business, Steve Himmelfarb and his wife, Becky Retz, announced that Cake Cafe would be closing their doors. But before they did, they offered one last love letter to diners. The Cake Cafe Cookbook, filled with recipes to help readers recreate the cafe experience at home. We spoke with Steve and Becky to hear their story and learn about the next chapter in their lives. I'd like to go back to the very beginning. Steve, you're not from here. You're actually a sound engineer. How'd you come to New Orleans? How'd that come to be? Well, I, was,
1: uh, I grew up in D.C. I loved cooking in school. I started cooking. My mother worked, so I cooked dinner for my two sisters, I think that's just an important part of this tale, I guess. And out of high school, I was either going to go to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park because I grew up in DC, or I was going to move out to Los Angeles and live with my father and then try and be in the music business. Cause I love being, I loved recording ever since I was a kid as well. So when I was 18, I moved to Los Angeles. It was the early eighties. It was really a hot time in the music business and I wanted to be in the middle of it. So I started knocking on doors of recording studios at the time and saying, I will clean up for free. You're eight, I was 18, you can pull that kind of thing off. And um, I really did go from door to door, literally try and get a job cleaning up from midnight till 9 a.m. And I got that job at a place called Cherokee Recording Studio, which was a serious rock and roll recording studio. So I was in heaven. I was in heaven. I was 18. I was working midnight to 9 a.m. And to this day, the loudest thing I have ever heard, this is a God's honest, true story, is the first mixing of the first Motley Crue record. You, in, you know, I went on from there to work at Capitol Records in their studios for five years and began making records there as an engineer. That's where I learned how to engineer, working on Bob Seger and Pat Benatar, Crowded House's first record. Dwight Yoakam's first record, Sheila E.'s first record. A lot of young artists at the time were coming through Capitol. And I was really happy to be able to be an engineer, fly on the wall sometimes in those sessions. I I was working all the time in L.A., and I I knew that wasn't a place I was going to live the rest of my life. I had some friends that lived down here, so I started visiting New Orleans over the course of a, a year or so. You know, when I was 24, 25 at the time, so I decided I'm going to move to New Orleans. <laughs> like, it was really kind of that fast. <laughs> I loved what I was doing, but really not a big fan of big cities. New Orleans always felt like home to me, which I never felt before. So I started working at a place called South Lake Recording Studio. The first record that I engineered in New Orleans was Buckwheat Zydeco on a night like this, produced by Chris Blackwell, who discovered Bob Marley, and it was nominated for a Grammy. So that was the first record that I did in New Orleans. Right. Right. Worth of Beausoleil, Buckwheat Zydeco, Robbie Robertson came down, you know, a lot of really great artists were coming down here at the time and ended up buying that studio. And so after a little while, I I sold my studio, moved to Nashville for a little while to kind of see what was next. Nashville was really hot in the early 90s, 93, 94. But I really got into cooking at that point. I got into working in restaurants. It was fulfilling that need that I had to create and be part of that creative energy, which I always found in the studio. Ended up moving back here about a year later and uh, was encouraged by friends to cook and bake. And that's where our story picks up.
0: Tell me how you became the cake man.
1: Well, I was encouraged to go and sell slices of cake door to door. I just did chocolate cake for like three years and I would bake them at home, slice up cakes into 12 slices and go sell them by the slice every single day. I went everywhere. Like, I went everywhere from Slidell to New Orleans East, Uptown, Metairie, and usually finished the day in the French Quarter. How many doors were you knocking? A lot. I would probably call like 100 people a day, probably. Wow. Because by the end, I was selling like 64 slices a day.
0: So, how did you make that decision to go to Bricks and Mortar and how fabulous on Exchange Alley in the French Quarter. You know, the slice
1: thing was kind of, you could kind of tell that it was kind of coming to an end as far as doing it. I'd been doing it for like over five years, six years, and you can kind of see like something new was, I wanted something new to take place. And Corbin Evans had Lulu's in that spot and Corbin would buy uh, cakes for me and sell them. So when his lease was up, had the resources at the time and could like start this little cake breakfast lunch shop. So it was really geared toward people who worked in the French Quarter, who were my customers who I got to know over the years, a place that they could um you know have lunch, really.
0: So then of course along comes Hurricane Katrina. Right. And that was mm-hmm. the end of the cake cafe on Exchange Alley.
1: Right, I stayed away from September, and I came back in March. For and I catered
0: on the first Jazz Fest team. Well, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit from Becky's side of this. At this point, there you go. Well, so, Becky, Becky, how did you find this guy? Did he try to sell you a slice of chocolate cake?
2: No, actually, uh, it was after the storm, and we met on Match.com. <laughs> That is the wildest thing. You're from here, aren't you? Yes, I am. And I was very much involved in the rebuilding effort after the storm. Uh, It took up all of my time outside of work. And I realized after a year, I had kind of worked my way completely out of a social life. And so it had become something we did at work in the afternoon just for fun to see what people would write back because it was so silly and then uh because I was very serious I had written about how devoted I was to my city and rebuilding it and people would just write silly things back and then one day I got an email that said I know what you're talking about and that was from Steve
0: (laughs) You know, I I have uh, such clear memories of that time, too. The baking miracle occurred where Bricadas stayed in New Orleans, didn't move to Houston. And that first St. Joseph's Day in 2006, Bricadas had cookies back on the shelves again. And it was because of that magical location that you came to open the next cake cafe in very
1: charmed spot. Very, very charmed spot.
2: It was just the two of us. We uh, Steve signed the lease and then we opened uh, two weeks later. Signed the um, lease on August the 29th, 2007.
0: Right.
1: Right. The mm-hmm. two year anniversary. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And then we opened on September 14th and it was just two weeks of us cleaning and setting up and me sewing curtains and Um, Steve getting his kitchen all together. And uh, it was wonderful to be on that corner in that neighborhood. That's the corner of Charters Um, and Spain uh, Mm -hmm. in the
0: Marini In that beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. It was just a great spot to, to be happy in.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really, the goal with the cake cafe was to build community through serving fresh and hearty food. That was the mission statement. People were, Asking in the very beginning, are we gonna get internet? Are we gonna get internet? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, we wanted to build community. And so within the first few weeks, we saw people who lived a couple blocks from each other, who sat apart when they first came in, were suddenly coming in at the same time and all sitting together. And I remember the moment where I was like, We're never getting internet. That's not happening. Like, because so many people had gravitated toward each other. And that was our that was our mission statement. And we really got to see like the community grow.
2: I always said we had different kinds of regulars. We had our regulars from the neighborhood who came in every day. And then we had eventually regulars who came in every week or so from that came all the way from the suburbs just to come in and see us and have breakfast and get one of Steve's delicious baked goods, cinnamon rolls or bagels and, um, And then we had regulars who came to see us every time they came to New Orleans. It's really special to have all those different people feel so connected that it becomes a touchstone. They have to stop in. They have to say hi. It was all quite lovely.
0: What an honor in so many ways to be so personally involved in the life of your customers, to have generations of birthday cakes, wedding cakes, cakes that mark a very important spot in people's lives. That's a big deal, a cake. It is a big deal. The relationship
1: is deep, and it's not taken for granted at all. It's probably the hardest part of closing the cafe was because we don't get that connection with everybody that we had before. We saw kids being born. We saw this total cycle of life, such a beautiful aspect of owning the cafe was really getting to know people and families and, and seeing those families blossom. You know, that's what kept us going. That's what the real mission was. It was really about, You know, getting to know people, building that community, being part of people's families and lives in our our own little way, seeing the kids grow. That's why in the book, there are so many pictures of kids. We really wanted it to be a snapshot of the cafe.
0: Coming up next, We'll learn why after 13 years in business, Steve and Becky closed down Cake Cafe, and what motivated them to write the Cake Cafe cookbook. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, and from Crystal Hot Sauce. Made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. you're just joining us we've been speaking with chef steve himmelfarb and his wife becky retz of cake cafe a popular cafe and bakery in new orleans marini neighborhood that closed its doors in the summer of 2020 they've since published the cake cafe cookbook designed to help readers recreate the cafe's beloved recipes at home So how many years was Cake Cafe on that happy corner of charters in Spain?
1: Thirteen. Thirteen years.
0: How in the world did you come to the decision to close it?
1: You know, it's not an easy decision under any circumstances. Um, The lease was coming due. We started looking at it. Knowing that a year out, we needed to make a decision, what was going to take place, and did we want to keep going? We took into factors, I took into factors, it was probably like 30 bullet points. It was about what do we want to do moving forward? There are other opportunities that were starting to blossom for us, and the I was working every single day four in the morning till five or six in the afternoon for 13 years. And that's, you know,
0: and that was the off season. Yeah, I know. I know it's the hardest business, the hardest business,
1: truly, truly. And so with the lease being paid finished, we didn't owe anybody any money. All our bills were paid. All of our employees were taken care of. And I think that through a lot of self, you know, reflection we saw that we had accomplished all we set out to accomplish with the cafe and it was time to go ahead and close the cafe and move on to some other opportunities that were presenting themselves to Becky and myself
2: as new orleanians it is our tradition to not only respect but have reverence for the earth and nature and nature has seasons everything has a season you know when people from other places would come in and they were saying, well, I want crawfish. And we have to explained, well, it's not crawfish season. And the way you get the best out of life is to respect that there are seasons and, and to understand when those times and seasons have passed and the season for the cafe in that incarnation was over. It was time to move to the next thing. Well, you know, it's so
0: wonderful. What you all did because you had created this community. You have all these people who loved you and just this in intimate, personal relationship with your customers. And so you wrote them a love letter. You wrote a book and you gave it all up, didn't you? You just told them how to do it. Them, It's the ultimate cake cafe, beloved customer DIY, isn't it?
2: It really is.
1: I think it's always been something that has been brought up a number of times over the years, and it wasn't something that was time to do. And it really seemed clear once we closed the cafe and we really felt what everybody was feeling and, and feeling that sense of loss ourselves. We looked at it and went, we're writing a cookbook.
0: Well, maybe you know? that's because fried potato salad never goes out of season, does it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nor does corned beef hash or cinnamon rolls.
0: (laughs) Well, fried potatoes, that is just the most wackadoodle thing. And I love (laughs) it. And I know that was a beloved high carb treat for many. Tell us, tell us about fried potato salad. Sure. So for a long time, you know,
1: we always get requests for potatoes. You have breakfast potatoes, you have breakfast potatoes. I'm like, no, we don't have breakfast potatoes. If you're working in a kitchen, you know that potato production can be time consuming for one. And it was always about keeping things pretty simplistic in general, and but making them really good in the other end as well. And we're a small place, small staff. So we had to really kind of manage our time really well. And so breakfast potatoes weren't something that were on the menu for a long time. And then, you know, we started doing the corned beef hash. And so we had basically potato salad. We were making the potatoes. We had already gotten into that. So I figured, well, look, what is something so totally different as opposed to just doing hash browns? What can I do that's so just out there, stupid, quite frankly, over <laughs> the
0: top? And it was fried potato salad. That's brilliant. And, you know, one of the things that's very clear in the love letter is how the two of you are just such Hopeless romantics because you felt that you had to explain the whole origin of one of your top selling breakfasts, the Costa Rican. Tell me
2: about that dish. You're it. Oh well, the yeah. the Costa Rican was inspired by our honeymoon. We went to Costa Rica and we honeymooned with the view of, of a volcano outside of our room. And It was just such a wonderful trip. And Steve came back and he used that energy and took all of those elements of the delicious flavors that we experienced there and put them together into a meal that is at once simple and deliciously complex when it's all together. And there's another big thing that I have to
0: personally thank you for. Okay, there are few people in the world who I have ever worked with that I enjoyed and treasured the working relationship with than Corbin Evans. But you gave up the roasted veggies from Corbin. I'm so tickled to have that recipe. Don't tell him. (laughs) I'm going to call him up, man. He's next on the show. Oh really? <laughs> I just want to thank you all for, for doing this magic. And would you like to give me a hint of what life is like for Steve and Becky these days? What are, what are the new frontiers? Where are we going to see you all next?
1: From the standpoint of the things we're working on, i um, just did King cakes at NOCA. I teach at NOCA in the media arts department. Um, I'm doing uh More and more recording, just recorded 19 songs for a Red Beans Parade double album that'll be out sometime in the year, doing production on a friend of mine who just recorded a record, Joe Tullis, and also been hired to do some in-home cooking as well for other people.
2: Well, I'll tell you, one of our new frontiers, which I am very excited about, is we have breakfast together almost every day. Uh (laughs) That's so it's like
0: retirement.
2: <laughs> it's wonderful because we're doing different things now. We're going in different directions, but uh, we get up and we have, it's simple breakfast, but it's just so nice to have that time together in the morning. And after so many years of lovingly and gratefully taking care of other people, it's very nice for us to have a little time to take care of ourselves and each other, and we're really enjoying that.
1: I can't say it any better than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Steve Himmelfarb and Becky Ritz of the former Cake Cafe and Bakery in New Orleans. To get a copy of the Cake Cafe cookbook, visit nolacakes.com. You'll also find a link on our website, poppytooker.com. If only one, you know what I'm talking about. It don't take no genius, baby. To figure What is What's all the fuss about roasted vegetables? If you were fortunate enough to have dined at Chef Corbin Evans' restaurants, Lulu's on Exchange Alley, or Lulu's in the Garden, which was located on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans Garden District, it's a good chance you may have had those roasted veggies. Honestly, it's the only vegetable sandwich this meat eater ever consumed on a regular basis. When I learned that Steve had included Corbin's recipe in the Cake Cafe cookbook, I immediately turned on my oven and got cooking. The reward was simply the most divine taste memory that brought my friend Corbin and all the delicious fun we had had together flooding back to me in such a visceral way. The whole process starts with the balsamic vinegar that incorporates olive oil, honey, and orange juice into the mix. When the raw veggies are tossed in Corbin's vinaigrette before being roasted, they gain a sweet, savory edge that's simply magical. Oh, and it's pretty good as a chicken marinade, too. Just saying. One of the most important tips you'll learn is that the different vegetables have to roast separately. Don't worry. You can fit more than one pan in your oven. This is important because they all take different lengths of time to achieve that perfect, deep, roasted flavor. For a copy of the recipe, visit my website, poppytooker.com. Or even better, get a copy of the Cake Cafe Cookbook. You'll find that link on our website as well. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Corbin Evans Roasted Vegetables makes for some good Louisiana Eats.
3: My name is Corbin Evans, and I'm chef-owner of Oxford Canteen in Oxford, Mississippi.
0: Chef Corbin Evans is a man after my own heart. Back at the turn of the millennium, Corbin and I worked extensively together on the board of the Crescent City Farmers Market. Corbin was an integral part of the White Boot Brigade, an effort organized after Hurricane Katrina to get restaurateurs like Danny Meyer and Alice Waters to feature Gulf seafood on their menus in New York and San Francisco illustrating how special and delicious our seafood truly is while supporting our Gulf fisheries. Aside from being a talented chef, Corbin is also one of the most gifted cooking teachers I've ever met, something he displayed on a regular basis during the happy days of the Savvy Gourmet, the Magazine Street Hub where we both taught after Katrina and where Corbin was the chef and where I couldn't resist grabbing a roasted veggie off a speed rack as I passed through his busy kitchen. The taste memory of those times brought back by the Cake Cafe cookbook made me want to catch up with my old friend, who has since decamped to Oxford, Mississippi. That's when I realized I had no idea how Corbin had come to live in New Orleans in the first place.
3: I was uh. Visiting with my sister's AAU basketball team the summer of 1999 and Gerard Maris, who was my original chef at Mr. B's, had just opened Gerard's downtown. And I was looking for something different to do. And I was, I actually thought about moving to New Orleans, but reconnecting with him after 13 years, I guess, um, just sparked my motivation to come on down and And uh, so that was 99. I, I moved there and, and left about 10 years later.
0: Well, then actually your relationship with new Orleans goes back even further. When did you work at Mr. B's?
3: I did my internship from the culinary Institute in 1986, the summer of 86. It was actually the first kitchen I'd ever worked in. And the first night, the person who was supposed to train me didn't show up, so I got to do hot apps for 350 guests after, <laughs> after about an hour of uh, being shown how to do the appetizers. But I knew right then, and working with Gerard, I knew that that's uh, what I wanted to do, so it was a really important moment. And I've kept in touch with him over the years. He actually cooked the food for our wedding, and, but yeah, that's what got me back to New Orleans in '99.
0: And so you came back here and you worked um, at Gerard's?
3: Well, actually a year there. And then I was the chef de cuisine at Bayona for almost two years and then struck out on my own.
0: What an incredible influence Gerard Maris has had on the New Orleans food scene. It's just such an incredible gift that he has given the city.
3: He, He quietly showed us all how to cook. I mean, he really... He took us all at different times in our careers and really uh, motivated us and pushed us and, and taught us the things that, that he believes in. So along with that and the other chefs that I work for, Susan and a couple of chefs in New York and stuff, I mean, that's that's how I cook still to this day. And that's part of where, where the roasted vegetables came from was, you know, seasonal and simply touched so that they still tasted like they should.
0: Tell me, when did you start making those roasted vegetables?
3: Well, I guess when I had the first Lulu's, the Lulu's in the quarter, um, I came up with the idea to do a roasted vegetable sandwich. And I've been making that vinaigrette since I don't even know when, long time, 20 years or whatever. And uh, that's what I used to marinate them or lightly uh, toss them before they got roasted. And we just, we came up with this idea for a farmer's cheese that was spread on the toasted bread um, along with the roasted vegetables and, it just for vegetarians. It's a really hearty dish. I mean, Ben Jaffe used to come all the time and and eat get that only. He never tried anything else on the menu. He's like, "Why would I try anything else? This is like this is this is my perfect lunch." So, and we had a lot of, a lot of friends and and regulars that weren't even vegetarians, but they just liked the meatiness of the dish.
0: So, take us back to that first restaurant of yours, Lulu's on Exchange Alley. How did it come to be? And tell me about that little perfect moment in time.
3: Um, Well, I was looking to do something different. I'd been at Bayona for a while and I was kind of ready to do something on my own, but with a much smaller footprint. And I think I want to say Dan S is, who's a chef in new Orleans and a good friend told me about the spot that used to be old dog, new trick, I think was what it was and that it was available. And I looked at it and, got some money together and painted it mayonnaise, mustard, and ketchup colors on the inside, which very few people understood. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, it it was a perfect spot for me. And I I ran it with just, you know, a small staff and lots of great chefs came through there too. Um, Brian Burns from his place on Britannia. He was my dishwasher before he decided he wanted to cook. And you remember Nat Carrier and it just, it was, yeah. At the time it was perfect.
0: So, Corbin, you left New Orleans. How long has it been now?
3: Well, I left in 2009. And, and tell,
0: tell us about life in Oxford, Mississippi. It's it's different than here.
3: <laughs> it's, it's a lot different. Uh, I moved here in 2011. I went to New York and Philly in between and went back to college and taught culinary school for a little while. And then My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, moved to Oxford to teach uh, journalism. And so our commuting from New York to Philly was getting pretty old. So we figured let's move together to Oxford and been here ever since.
0: You have now put your own culinary imprint on that special little southern place. Tell me about the Oxford Canteen.
3: Well, originally it started in a little pedestrian alley on the square with just a window and a 10 by 15 foot kitchen uh, that I did breakfast and lunch out of for three years. And then uh, some doctors who bought a property that had a uh, old gas station on it approached us and asked if we were interested in opening another restaurant and they would help with some of the rehab and stuff. So we we decided to. Move up to Midtown. We're, we're we're across the street from the Midtown Shopping Center. People call this uh, NOLA because it's North Lamar Avenue, which is hilarious. But uh,
0: and what dishes have you taken with you?
3: That that's a good question. We we've expanded the menu a lot, and we do we do really great breakfast tacos, and we have uh, this brisket grilled cheese with sriracha mayo that is a belly filler, but it's been named one of the best grilled cheeses in Mississippi, and we sell a lot of that. You know, we don't have a fryer, so everything's healthy and freshly made, and we still put the farmer's cheese on a different sandwich, a turkey sandwich with a a kale and smoked almond pesto and bacon jam, which has become kind of a real popular sandwich, too, and then we we do the roasted veg, but we we mix it with um, brown rice, red rice, and some quinoa, and uh, season it up with some parmesan, and uh, so it's still influenced here. It's not as a sandwich so much, but uh, but it's still on the menu.
0: Well, this was just a treat going down memory lane with you, and I can't wait to see your face. So come visit soon, would you? Uh,
3: we'll, we'll try to get down there this summer for sure.
0: That was Corbin Evans chef-owner of the Oxford Canteen in Oxford, Mississippi. What is the chef's favorite secret cheater pantry staple? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay? Play and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the chef's favorite secret cheater pantry staple? Drum roll, please. Boxed Pioneer Biscuit Mix. Yep, biscuit mix. It's what my friend, Chef Jared Zerang, uses unapologetically to make the crackling biscuits he serves at Wayne Jacobs' Smokehouse in Laplace. You'll find that recipe in my Drag Queen brunch book. And it's the main ingredient in the Cake Cafe Biscuit recipe, too. In the hands of Becky Retz, Steve's wife those tall flaky biscuits become something extraordinary by properly folding and manipulating the dough. All those details are in the cookbook and you'll find that link on our website poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker and it seems that Pioneer Biscuit Mix is at the root of some great Louisiana eats.
4: Hi, I'm Pete Morano, longtime guitarist for Trombone Shorty in Orleans Avenue, and an avid eater.
0: When speaking with Cake Cafe's Steve Himmelfarb about his passion for music and food, I was reminded of another New Orleanian who wears his love for both on his sleeve. If you follow guitarist Pete Morano of Trombone Shorty's band Orleans Avenue on social media, you'll find food pics posted from wherever he is on tour. In the past year, though, as he and the band have been forced to stay home, Pete has embraced food in a whole new way, becoming one of Instagram's newest cooking stars. Pete joined us to tell us what he's been up to in the past year. Well,
4: like everyone, I've been spending a lot of time at home, and I love to cook. I really do. And before the pandemic, I would be on the road a lot of times. And being on the road, I would find myself in many situations where I got to eat all kinds of great stuff. The one thing you don't really get to do is cook. And so when I would come home off the road, that was kind of that's that's what I'm thinking about if I'm coming (laughs) back from being out of town for a long time is what are we gonna what are we gonna make this time? (laughs) So being at home uh, once quarantine started. Started cooking a lot. And just for fun, I started putting stuff that I was making on Instagram. And then kind of unexpectedly, I started getting a response from people like, ooh, I like that. Ooh, what is that? Hey, how do I do that? And so I just kind of went with it and said, okay, well, this is fun. You know, it's connecting with people. It, it You know, in the, in the mind and in your heart, food and music, they fire off some of the same stuff for me. So, it was. It I don't know. It felt very natural for me to just sort of okay. Well, I'm just going to do this now.
0: Well, for anybody who has never visited, they just need to check out the hashtag Pete's Kitchen. That's one of the places that we can find you. And Pete, you and a skirt steak, man. Y'all have something (laughs) going on. Hey, thank you very much. What really impressed me in your skirt steak presentation. You're grilling, how you know just how to get those perfect schnick you know, those those uh, little the gr- la,
4: the <laughs> la, it's it's satisfying when you can get the lines but you haven't overcooked anything.
0: I'll say that. <laughs> That's one of the yummy things. Now, you're not from New Orleans, are you?
4: No, not I'm uh I was born in New Jersey. I moved around a lot as a kid. I like to think it was uh preparation for life on the road. Uh, When I was nine, we moved to uh, Yorktown, New York for a little while. Then when I was 12, 13 years old, we moved to St. Louis. And then when I was 18, I made the decision to come down to New Orleans and immediately fell in love with the place, as happens to people. And yeah, been here ever since.
0: Well, I think that your Italian heritage, you were really showing off in your cooking videos about campanata. Campanata, was that a family recipe, or is that something that you've come to love?
4: Uh, That that one is something that I've just kind of come to love. My family is Italian. My grandmother was a really great cook. My mom was a great cook. My godmother is a fantastic cook. So food has always played a very important role in my life, both making it and eating it and serving it to people. It's an expression of love. The two are forever and inextricably connected.
0: Well, you put me in a trance with your fried oysters, those oysters frying in oh, the pan. Those, those are good. How did your food change when you moved to New Orleans?
4: Well, I had never fried oysters before, I can tell you that. Obviously, there's a, a the culinary heritage here is very strong. So once I moved to New Orleans, I, I learned a lot about the regional foods from here, just from doing it also. I was just cooking for myself some more or from cooking for my friends more often. And as it, as you, uh, like with anything, with repetition, you know, especially with something you're passionate about, it gets better.
0: I, I loved, you know, just watching your progress from, um, what you would sometimes say was a hashtag obligatory food shot because you were giving your food love away early on with uh mixed in with the rock and roll pictures there uh-huh. is food
4: <laughs> yeah I, I can't help myself what can i say
0: so as you travel you're picking up skills yeah picking up skills and just getting
4: getting inspired just looking at different things it's it's amazing to be able to travel and see places and to be able to play music for for crowds in faraway lands, is a really great feeling. And another really great feeling is when I'm off in God knows where, and, you know, you're tired, been traveling a long time, you've been walking a long time, but, like, I'm trying to find just the right spot I want to go eat. And then just right on the other side of that uh, little episode of being uncomfortable is some really amazing meals and really amazing moments Have uh, and I I love that feel I love that sense of accomplishment and eating the actual food it's totally a personal sense of accomplishment but I really like it and also I feel like I've learned more about just people in general and the world when you're you know you'd be sitting in a place in in Japan or wherever and you're eating and you're trying weird stuff and somebody says excuse me how'd you even find this place like (laughs) it's fun it's fun for me
0: Tell me a little bit also about your time at home and how it has changed your life. This year,
4: I, uh, well, besides documenting cooking a lot more, you know, I've been spending more time focusing on writing music rather than performing it. The routine of kind of being in one place, I've just kind of been uh, embracing. And I I feel like a lot of people could say this too. You know, there's There's times about this whole thing where it's like, oh, my God, what is happening? What is this? And there's other other points during the pandemic where it's like, oh, hey, you know what? This is kind of nice. Let's make dinner. You know, there's good and bad with everything, and I'm just uh, just taking it day by day.
0: I would like to know a little bit more about a word that I believe you must have coined. What do you mean by... Inspractal? Oh man, okay. I
4: I uh I can't take credit for coining the term, but I can tell you who did. So I was in Nice, France. Great place to eat. Just as a side note. So we were playing at this festival and uh Dr. John was on the bill. And so Mac and I were talking backstage and uh we we're talking about music. Talking about songwriting and uh and he says to me, he says, Let me tell you something, partner. A song can come from anywhere. Earl King told me this. Now I'm telling you, you can get inspractal from anything.
0: <laughs> inspractal.
4: Inspractal. And I was just like, Oh, I'm gonna use that word till the day I die. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm taking it, too, Mr. Morano. Please
4: do. Think of Mac (laughs) when you use it.
0: Amen. Now that I know how to pronounce it, I'm halfway there. Thank you, Pete. I look forward to cooking together one happy day in the future.
4: Ah, yes, me too. I cannot wait.
0: Pete Morano, longtime guitarist for Trombone Shorty and Orleans Avenue and Louisiana food lover. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blender's. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredients blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mullidoux. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.